Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment because science was on my side. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Erin Barker, and today we're bringing you our latest installment of our Human Nature series, which is about our experiences with the natural world and how they shape us. This week, both of our storytellers found humility in the natural world, whether it was amongst the sand dunes in Cape Cod or in the South American rainforest. Our first story today is from Stephen Smith. It was recorded last month at his home in Massachusetts. It was uh, 1997 when I when I graduated with my PhD from the University of Miami in environmental science, and I landed my first real job uh, shortly thereafter. And this was with a state agency in Florida that was doing a lot of ecological restoration in the Everglades, so it was kind of a dream job. Um, and so, in I did field work in very remote locations in the Everglades. It was, it was like I said, really a dream job for me. I got to fly around in a helicopter on most days to do our sampling and survey work. And, and it, was, it was there that I really cut my teeth in doing difficult, strenuous, and, and really physically taxing work. I was the guy you know, that strapped himself into a harness and hung out the open doorway of the helicopter to film a marsh wildfire. And you know, I regularly endured um, uh, poison, you know, the threat of poisonous snakes and alligators. And, um, we often had, were covered with fire ants and had to deal with raging heat and humidity, colossal thunderstorms and the like. So, um, on another adventurous day, actually, I got, I got stuck in the muck so deep in the, in the, in the marsh that I had to be extracted by the helicopter by hanging onto a strut while it uh, lifted off. And, Unfortunately, my chest waiter stayed behind in the in the muck forever, but um, it was an interesting experience. And um, you know, I'd, I'd even be been electrified by a lightning strike very close to our airboat. So, a lot of uh, hair raising but thrilling experiences there. And um, you know, I emerged at the end of this this five year stint at this agency feeling like uh, you know a winner on the on the show survivors something at times but um as much as i loved this job i was personally longing to move north closer to where i grew up which was in canada actually and my and i had family uh now in vermont and and when an opportunity to move north and work for the national park service arose i i moved with my floridian native floridian wife three-year-old daughter and one-year-old son to cape cod that that uh, tiny sandbar stuck out in the Atlantic Ocean that's become uh, a huge tourist mecca for lots of people around the country and the world, actually. Um, anyway, I arrived in April of 2002 and, and started setting up my program of ecological research across 
you know, this, this new landscape. And field work there on Cape Cod, you know, through spring, that first spring, summer, and fall was uh, comparable to going to a spa with what I endured in the Everglades. I, I wasn't in danger of collapsing from heat exhaustion every moment. There was no wildlife that would kill you, uh, you know, anywhere you went. You're only a few miles at, at most from civilization. And the most dangerous thing I ever encountered in the first nine months there were tourists. And most of those, those situations happened in summer traffic, not in the field. But um, And so in a way, it was maybe a little boring compared to my Everglades gig, but it was um, it was nice. And it was kind of a welcome change after, you know, almost five years of of sort of suffering willingly uh suffering suffering but suffering nonetheless in the field in in south florida and then winter came and i found myself sitting in front of my computer a lot looking at thousands of rows of data and trying to figure out how to make sense of it all and you know i guess at some point um one day in january i got i got tired of feeling like a piece of furniture under a fluorescent lamp and decided to do a quick little field trip out into the dunes to look at um an interdunal wetland that I've been curious about. It was a little, it was a little brisk that day around, you know, 35, 40 degrees, but that was nothing to, to this Canadian bread boy, despite having become acclimatized to warm weather for the last 18 years. But, you know, I just, I, I didn't think much of it. I put on a light jacket and figured that since I'd be generating heat as I, as I walked anyways, I'd, I'd be all right. So, um, and I also figured I'd only be out there for an hour tops, and it was uh, where I had to park to access the site was only about five minutes from my office. So uh, across the tip of Cape Cod is this vast 4,000-acre expanse of sand dunes, and it's really stunning. You know, in between the dunes are these little oases where the groundwater intersects uh, with the land surface elevation to create these wetlands full of unique and interesting flora and fauna and tons of uh, amazing orchids. And, um, and it's a really amazing place. And as soon as I, as soon as I got out of the truck, I, I, you know, surveyed the landscape and, and thought to myself, this is going to be a fun little, fun little walk in the dunes. And, you know, the first thing I heard as I got out of the car was, was the wind over the sand and the wind in the, in the sand dunes there makes odd sounds as it swirls and all these particular patterns through, and as it winds its way through the, the interesting topography of dunes and valleys and but as I got to the top of the first large dune that I had to go over, uh, I was hit with a little gust that was a little bit chilly, um, but I didn't think anything of it. And I descended the other side into a, like this broad, lichen-covered, flat expanse between the dune ridges and walked to where it narrowed to form a valley between the two ridges. But about a half mile in, the wind direction changed a little bit, and it was noticeably colder as it began blowing in off the, the frigid North Atlantic. And... And now I felt a little bit underdressed at that point, but, you know, no worries. I could deal with it. I'm Canadian after all. Um, I continued my meandering, you know, through through the landscape, trying to reach that little dot on my GPS unit, which might have been another mile away, I'd guessed. Um, and by this point, I was actually already a mile in. So about 10 minutes later, I had to reevaluate things. I was getting quite cold now, and I actually questioned whether I could, you know, suck it up and continue and get back to the truck without being super uncomfortable. Um, you know, so I was having this conversation in my head, should I go back? But, you know, that would be a waste of time and effort and, and sort of embarrassing, actually. Um, and, you know, my intended destination wasn't too far away. And I was thinking maybe I could run there to warm up. But then I thought, oh, running in the 
the the sand dunes is just like running in in uh, molasses or in a dream where something's chasing you and every step is super slow and difficult. But um, I began to shiver a little bit and I looked around and saw how far I had to walk back to my vehicle. Should I go for it? You know, it would be kind of a miserable walk. But what else could I do to avoid you know um, this discomfort I was feeling? And you know, the first thing I thought was I just need to figure out a way to warm up so I can think properly. So I scurried over to a, a stand of short, gnarly pitch pines. There's not much vegetation cover out there. It's pretty open habitat, but there's a little stand of pines tucked in behind the dune. And, you know, I thought it wasn't much, but it would provide some protection from the wind until I warmed up enough to, to deal with it and think properly. So I went in there and I lay down on the ground, but somehow the wind was still finding its way through the trees. And uh, and so now I started to make a shallow trough in the sand and, you know, tried to get myself as low as possible. Um, I was thinking I should make myself like one of those hog-nosed snakes in the dunes there burrowing to the sand for protection. You know, I, and I was thinking, I very much like a little adventure, but um, this was becoming uh, a little weird. <laughs> And uh, frankly, a little bit uh, disconcerting. I was hoping that it was just a, a brief bit of un, uh, uncomfortability, or sorry, I was hoping that it was a brief bit of uncomfortable weather before it, you know, shifted around and and uh, and changed again, which it's apt to do out there. But I was getting colder by the moment in reality, and and I just started to dig myself further down into the sand and. Uh, it felt like I was making a, a den for myself at this point, like some some wild out animal out there. Um, and I felt sort of silly. Um, but I tucked my hands into my pants to keep my fingers warm. And they were really cold at this point. And, uh, and I'm thinking, man, I hope I don't get frostbite. I, re I really should have brought a backpack with gloves and a hat and some more layers. But, you know, back at the lab, it seemed mild. And I was going to be out there for just a, a, a little while. So... So now I'm on my belly, my hands are down my pants, my chin is on the ground, looking forward, trying to figure out how long it was going to be before I could get warm enough to, to dash back to the truck. Um, and I'm thinking, you know, okay, get low to the ground that way, the wind can't get me and I'm going to put my hands in my, I'm just going to keep my hands in my pants and try to warm them up and oh my God, I must look like an idiot. I hope no one finds me like this. That would be so embarrassing. I was uh, thinking at that moment that it would almost be better to be bitten by a, a snake in the Everglades than to have somebody find me in the dunes of Cape Cod lying on my stomach with my hands down my pants, uh, frozen in the sand. <laughs> at least then I would have had a, a, a decent story. But this just felt um, uh, dumb in a way. Um, so then so I, I'm, I'm just lying there and trying to think, and out of nowhere uh, – at that moment appears a large black animal coming toward me. And I didn't recognize what it was first. And then it hit me and I just, all I could think is, Oh my God, is that a skunk? Oh no, please. No, 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 no. I do not want to end up like that kid. My, my wife had just told me about a child that she'd heard about who got sprayed directly in the mouth when it had encountered a skunk under its, uh, under their back duck, under their back deck. So uh, I didn't want that to happen. That's for sure. It's it's it was undoubtedly a normal sized skunk, of course, but at ground level, it it looked about as big as a horse. And when it got to about six feet from me, it it just stopped dead in its tracks and, and fixed its gaze upon me. And 
And so, so now we're, we've, we've locked eyes and I try to figure out what it might be thinking. And I'm, I'm just absolutely paranoid that it's going to rear up and spray me. And, uh, you know, I'm afraid to move a muscle. I, all I could think about was that story. And, uh, um, so we just, we just sat there staring at each other for what felt like eternity, what was probably only, I don't know, 20 seconds or something. Uh, and then it, at, at some point it just simply turned and disappeared from sight. Just, just like that gone crisis averted. And I just breathed out a sigh of relief. Um, uh, and I was humbled in that moment because, you know, this, this, this tiny animal sort of had me hostage, <laughs> um, for a moment and I felt very vulnerable. So, you know, it left and slowly, miraculously, I began to warm up in that, in that little shallow foxhole in the trees. And, um, and in fact, I managed to, to gain back enough body heat to attempt my escape back to the truck. And, and so I, I got up and I determined that I was going back. No matter what, at this point, I was beyond caring about uh, losing any of my fingertips or, or, or toes at that point from the cold. So, you know, I did um, through a lot of determination um, and uh, a motivation to save face, uh, make the journey back to the, the warmth of the car. And I got in and warmed up and um, I won't say that I had a big epiphany that day. That that event did stick with me uh, after you know feeling like Superman, super field worker in the in the Everglades and sort of conquering a very dynamic landscape like that. It just reminded me that Mother Nature is still the boss, and I I caught a little break that day and was very and was spared a very smelly and embarrassing moment. Um, and I think in the back of my mind somewhere, this event altered my sense of place in the world and and maybe uh installed a little humility where it was needed in terms of uh how i fit into the in into nature and the environment so um i also have a new appreciation and uh, great respect for skunks that was stephen smith Stephen is a plant ecologist at the Cape Cod National Seashore, with expertise in plant physiology and plant community ecology. After spending five years working on the restoration of the Florida Everglades, he assumed his current position with the National Park Service in 2002. Stephen's current activities are focused on understanding the dynamics of spatial and temporal variability within plant communities and all the different ecosystems within the seashore. Before we continue on today, I just want to remind everyone that if you want to support stories like the ones you're listening to today, if you, like all of us at the Story Collider, believe in the power these stories have to change our understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to, you can sign up to support the Story Collider on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash the Story Collider. We so appreciate the support of our patrons. You can also check out storycollider.org for more information on upcoming shows and workshops. We have outdoor shows coming up this fall in New York, Atlanta, St. Louis, and more. And no matter where you are, we have live stream tickets that are available for other upcoming shows. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Our next story today is from Henrique Bravo. This story was recorded at his home in the Netherlands this August. It all started with a book, a book called Last Chance to See, where Douglas Adams and Mark Howardine crisscrossed the world looking for some of the most endangered and elusive species on the planet. They were looking for bats and rhinos, dolphins, flightless parrots, you name it. Not only that, they were also trying to talk to the conservationists that were trying to make a difference for these species, trying to bring them back from the brink of extinction. And as I'm reading through this book, I just kept thinking to myself how much absolutely love to do something like this. About a month before, a good friend of mine asked me if I would want to join her on a trip that would take us from Ushuaia, the tip of Argentina, to Alaska. And that was an easy yes. I just needed the money. So I moved to London and I started working at a pub for about three to four months. And I was sleeping on a friend's couch to save as much money as I could. And in my spare time, I would look up endangered species online. And I started compiling this ridiculous list that went up to 300 endangered species. And then I started cross-checking this with the scientific literature and the rough itinerary I had in mind, and I was able to bring it down to a more manageable number of about 30. So with this list of species in hand, that rough itinerary, and just enough money to cover my expenses for the next six months, I boarded the plane to Ushuaia. I'm sitting in this plane, and it's about, we're about halfway over the Atlantic, and the cabin lights have been dimmed because it's the middle of the night, and I'm watching a movie. And then things start getting a little bit darker, and then a little bit darker, and then there's some flashes that start appearing. So I get up, and I go to the back of the plane, and I ask a stewardess to give me some sugary drink. She waves me off and tells me to go back to my seat because we're going through some turbulence. So I lie down on the floor and then suddenly I have four stewardesses surrounding me. And now they're giving me all sorts of sugary drinks I can find and splashing water in my face. And it's in this moment that I realized that I probably signed up for something that was bigger than I thought. And I wasn't as prepared as I thought I was. Fast forward six weeks and I'm in Brazil and this little preparedness, um, is is showing because I haven't been able to see a single species. And in my mind, I thought that researchers would drop what they were doing for a couple of days and they would take me to the foothills of volcanoes to show me some frogs or over mountains to try and look for birds that probably don't even exist anymore. But it turns out that some of these researchers are just as elusive as the species that they're setting. So things didn't get off to an easy start. I had spent the last couple of weeks trying to look for a small rodent called chinchilla but to no success. So I'm up late one night, and in a desperate attempt, I go online on the website of the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, IUCN, which is my go-to resource for all things endangered. And I look for every single critically endangered species that occurs in that area of Brazil. And to my surprise, there's a species that sounds oddly familiar. It's called Auracaria angusifolia, also known as Paraná pine tree. And it sounded familiar because I had grown up with another species of Aracaria. So I knew that at least recognizing this species and also the sheer size of the tree would bring much better odds in trying to spot the small rodent. So I tweaked the plan a little bit. And the next morning, I go up to my friend that had been hosting us for the last couple of days, and I ask her if she happened to know of any of these trees around. And to my surprise and shock, she tells me that there should be one just outside the front door. So I rush to the front door. I open it. I look up. 
And there it was, this massive tree just towering over me. And not only that, but I, I actually went back to the room where I was sleeping in, and I could see it from that room window. So it, that only proved the point that there were definitely critically endangered species around. I had just been looking for the wrong ones. But it also brought a renewed sense of hope when I was very close to losing it. It, it proved that there were that there were species that could find them. And I thought that if I kept at it and if I kept its perseverance, I would be able to see some of the species that I had set out to. Over the following months, I was able to see monkeys in Peru and frogs in Ecuador and Costa Rica, corals in Panama. But there was this one species that kept eluding me, the hawksbill sea turtle. And this was starting to become personal because I was a tropical marine biologist. So I figured that spotting tropical marine species would be the easy part of the trip. But the Hawksville sea turtle was proving me wrong. And this was the fourth attempt in just as many countries. And in every single one of those places that I had tried before, uh, I was told that Hawksbills were easy and frequent sightings, which wasn't helping things. But this time I was going to try something different. I was going to go to what was nicknamed the Mecca of Hawksbill Sea Turtles. And it was nicknamed that because that's where about 40% of the known nesting uh, population from the Eastern Pacific is known to nest. This is a crazy amount of sea turtles. Not only that, but I was also going to spend three days and three nights looking for this turtle, which was the longest period of time I had dedicated to seeing any species on the trip. So if it wasn't going to be in this place and over that amount of time, chances were I was going to be able to see the social at all. So this was, in my mind, the last chance that I had of seeing it. So this local NGO agreed to take me on. And over the next three days, we get told about the different uh, projects they have in place to protect these turtles. But it's at night that things get interesting. We get to patrol the beaches to look for turtles and turtle tracks. And over the first couple of nights, we do see some turtle tracks, but that's about it. So as we start the patrol on the third night, I have this looming feeling that I'm not going to be able to see one. And the reason I kept being told uh, that I hadn't been able to see one was because it was an El Nino year. So that meant it was particularly dry and the rains hadn't started yet. And it hadn't rained in the previous, between the previous night and this night. So I didn't think I had very good chances. So we do the patrol uh, for, for a couple of hours and we see some more turtle tracks, but that's it. So I, I'm disappointed and I'm sad. And David comes up to me, who's the person who had been in charge of that little expedition. And he tells me that we should try again the next morning, but we're going to try something else. We're going to go on boats to try and catch these turtles to measure them and tag them. I said, that sounds great. Let's do it. So the next morning I wake up exhilarated and excited because I think, okay, this is it. This is going to be the moment where I'm finally going to be able to see one. We set out on two boats and we're meandering through mangrove channels, uh, looking at the surface of the water, trying to spot some turtle heads bobbing out. But within a couple of minutes, we see one. They cast their nets, they catch the turtle, they bring it over to our boat and they start measuring and weighing and tagging it. I'm just in awe. I can't, I can't even process everything that's happening. I'm just incredibly happy that this little juvenile sea turtle is sitting next to me. Not only that, but then it's actually handed to me so I can do some of the measurements as well. And I just feel so happy that I've finally been able to see one, which is probably 
in parts because it had taken so long and so many attempts at seeing one. But I also had this feeling of completeness because I have finally been able to see one. And I feel like now I can move on to other species. But again, it reinforced that feeling that if I kept at it, I would be able to see any species that I set out to. So this just kept on bringing more hope for the rest of the species that I had on my list. I'm sitting on a plane back home from Alaska, having finished the trip and thinking about the hawksbill sea turtle and the aracadia and all the other species. But I'm still a little bit disappointed because I hadn't been able to see any species in the United States. The United States was one of the biggest countries and it was also one of the last ones. So I wanted to finish with a bang. But I also remember that I had read an article a couple of months before of a species of endangered butterfly that happened to live on the runway of Los Angeles airports. It just so happens that I was on my way to Los Angeles airport. And I had a four hour layover. So I stepped out of the plane and I checked on my iPod touch, which at that point was my only non-stolen tech device uh, to try and see if the four hours that I had would be enough time to loop around the airport and still made it on time to my next flight. And apparently it was, I would still have almost an hour to spare. So I spent the next hour just trying to leave the airport and getting rid of my luggage. And the hour after that, just walking along a motorway, which wasn't incredibly exciting. But by the end of the second hour, things start getting interesting because I start noticing massive billboards and information panels that tell me that I'm now on butterfly territory, which consists of dunes with coast buckwheat growing on them. So I start maybe a little uh, too excitingly shaking bushes and looking under rocks and rock crevices, trying to see any uh, butterfly movements, uh, but nothing. So it's at this point that some thoughts start going through my mind. I'm wondering, are butterflies active at night? Do they sleep? Because it's 2 a.m. And, and deep down, I knew that the ones that are predominantly active at night are called moths. But I felt that I had to give it a chance anyway. But why was I risking so much when I couldn't afford to miss this flight? I literally couldn't afford it. I had spent the previous months having learned to let go of many things. Of places I wasn't going to go back to of material possessions that had got taken away from me, of people and of species that I hadn't been able to see. And this was one more moment, the final moment where I had to le learn to let go one more time. Otherwise I would miss that flight. And I had to learn to let go of this perfect trip finale that I hoped would bring me one final species in the United States. So I'm sitting on that next plane and looking out of the window, watching the sunrise and thinking that now would probably be a great time to go and look for butterflies. If only that layover had been a little bit longer or a little bit later. And I start flicking through my notebook because I'm, I'm disappointed and I still haven't really been able to accept that I had to let go of that butterfly. And I'm going over my notebook to try and remind me of all the species that I had been able to see. But I also start seeing the ones that I haven't seen. And in that moment, I promised myself that I would be telling the story of the condor and the chinchilla and the butterfly and all the other species that I hadn't been able to see, because that's be a more important story to tell.
is Henrique Bravo. Henrique is a PhD student from Portugal based in the Netherlands, studying the symbiotic relationship between tiny Caribbean crabs and corals. In his spare time, he likes to be in the water, on a squash or tennis court, reading a good book that might change his life, looking for endangered species, or traveling a bit. He is currently collating the adventures from his Pan-American trip into a book. The Story Collider is so grateful to Stephen and Enrique for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by me, Erin Barker, Executive Director and Co-Founder of the Story Collider, with assistance from Story Collider's Program Director, Nissa Greenberg, and Senior Podcast Editor, Jun Chen. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including Managing Director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, and Marketing Manager Nikesha Roberts-Washington, without whom none of this would be possible. Stories featured in today's episode were produced by Misha Gajewski and Fiona Calvert, respectively. Our theme music is by Ghost. Stay tuned for our last episode of Human Nature next week. Until then, thanks for listening. 